1: Doug Parker joins us now. He's American Airlines chairman and chief executive officer, and he joins us uh, through our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Uh, We started out talking about privatizing air traffic control, and I would love your take. First of all, do you support the privatization of this aspect of air traffic, Uh, and also How much would it change your business if this were to happen?
2: Yeah. We do support it. Um, You know, privatization is a bit of a misnomer here. We're not looking to put it into a for-profit corporation. We don't think that'd be a good idea, but but a not-for-profit corporation uh, that would allow us to invest the way that um, ATC needs to be invested in, um, to put in place. The kind of um, technology that exists around the world that we're not using in the United States, and it's, we believe it's primarily due to the governance uh, structure that we have in place that requires the FAA to go back every year and look for look for new authorization, uh, has them subject to the whims of, of sequesters and things uh, that just doesn't that doesn't provide itself the right structure for long-term investment. over a long period of time.
1: But, Doug, do you think that there would be fewer delays that, uh, just in general, that air travel would be easier and more streamlined if there was a privatization of air traffic control? Would things work better?
2: Absolutely. That's why we're doing it. Again, I described the governance that allows you to invest. We need to invest to put the technology in place that indeed allows us to provide the level of service we know we could. Uh, We'd be much more efficient. You know, it takes today to get from uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, or Philadelphia about 40 minutes longer than it did just 15 years ago. And the airplanes have gotten faster. Uh, What's happened is the air traffic control space has gotten backed up. And uh, again, that shouldn't happen. Uh, It's not not because uh, we've done anything as a country other than that we haven't invested in technology that keeps up with the growth in the airline industry.
0: Can you tell us uh, an example of a, a air traffic control system in the world currently that you believe is the leader or a model?
2: Um Canada's very good. Um, indeed indeed that's where that's the model we're looking to replicate here. But but look, it's not just Canada. It's all over the all over the world. Um, there are countries doing a much better job with technology than the United States. But Canada did almost exactly what we're looking to do here. They had it as part of the government. Uh, they took it, put it in a not-for-profit corporation, uh, and their results have been stunningly positive.
1: Doug, how much would you and your business be willing to pay to improve the uh, the airports in metropolitan areas like New York and Chicago? How much would it? Would it benefit your business to have a nicer infrastructure in those cities?
2: A lot, uh, and we're doing it actually. Um, the, You're the way- personally investing money. Well, we are. Yeah, our, our our airline, as are some other airlines. I mean, part of the problem here is um, that airlines, when we weren't profitable, couldn't invest very well, and that's that. And, and indeed, uh, how air, how airports are financed is through uh, rents and landing fees from airlines. So um, we've certainly seen a lack of investment over time that needs to be corrected. Uh, we, we, like other airlines, are investing billions of dollars throughout the United States in airport infrastructure, uh, which we will then pay over time with higher rents and landing fees, and we're happy to be doing that.
0: I I just got to think you got a lot of things, uh, it's like you're the guy that's got to keep the plates all spinning at the same time, right? Whether it's security, government agencies, landing slots, capacity issues, uh, fuel issues. What's the most pressing issue for you that you'd like to get across to individual travelers? Because I just cited a J.D. Power survey that says that people, by and large, when they're asked, really, service, they they like airlines, it's getting better.
2: Yeah, that, that'd be that'd be the message I'd, I'd, I'd like to get across to, to travelers. Is you look, we all know, um, you know, some high hope high profile, high, high profile events of the last couple of months um, have to high, say the least. Yeah, exactly. Have highlighted some uh, customer service issues that need to be addressed. But please don't think that's due to the to the team members at American Airlines or the other airlines. Uh, we have we have phenomenal people out there who. who do amazing things for our customers who provide safe travel around the globe that makes our country run, uh, and they're doing it every day um, in, in sometimes difficult circumstances. They're doing phenomenal jobs, and all they want to do is have the tools they need to take care of customers. To the extent there are customer service issues, that's because we, the airlines, have put those people in difficult circumstances, and that's for us to fix. Um, but you know, in this world where people are trying to you know figure out how to be the next viral video by filming someone doing something on an airplane, Um, That that does a disservice to our team, who is really out there doing great stuff all the time. We're extremely proud of them. And the work they're doing, we, as airlines, uh, need to make sure we put in place policies and procedures that don't put them in difficult positions, but indeed, rather give them the tools they need to do the jobs they know how to do so well. So,
1: Doug, I'm looking right now at crude oil at a little bit more than $44 a barrel, and I'm wondering, how much does it increase the profitability of American airlines if oil prices were to stay at this level uh, for, say, Another year or two.
2: Yeah, look. Of course, it helps. It's our second largest expense behind behind uh, employee costs. So, um, a, a drop in oil prices uh, tends to you know, obviously falls to the bottom line in terms of expenses. In today's in today's world, though, we 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 see much of that go to the consumer, uh, much if not all. Certainly, in the longer term, because what happens uh, as as we've seen. Recently, you know, someone just pointed out to me the other day that uh, inflation is one of the primary reasons inflation is as low as it is in the United States. It's because airfares have fallen so much. <clears throat> well, airfares have fallen so much because fuel prices have fallen. And when fuel prices fall, uh, capacity comes in in excess of demand and fares fall. So... Um, we get a benefit, there's no doubt about it, but much of that benefit accrues to consumers.
0: All right. I'm going to give you, it's almost like a, a, game, a game show here, Doug, because uh, I'm going to give you the names of some of your hubs, and I just want you to give me like two words each or three words each to describe what's going on and what's the most pressing issue. Let's start with LaGuardia. Uh,
2: LaGuardia, LaGuardia is an infrastructure issue. Um, we, need, we need to improve the airport, but we also need to improve the airspace. ATC reform would help Then.
0: All right. So that's uh, LaGuardia. Tell me what's going on in Miami.
2: Uh, Miami, a great international hub for American Airlines, struggling somewhat because of the economies um, in Latin America and South America, but they're rebounding nicely. We're very encouraged.
1: Can I... Can I interrupt the uh, the quiz, Doug? Okay. I'd love to get. I was having fun with this. <laughs> I know. I'm
0: sorry. I, to, I was going to, gonna to get to the Boston and I know, and, and but and no, hold on a second.
1: But I want to get to to sort of the immigration and the whole yeah. concept of uh, the uh, travel ban or the travel restrictions that are still being fought uh, in courts. I'm just wondering, you know, all of this talk about limiting immigration has that affected international travel? Are you seeing uh, declines as a result of that to the U.S.
2: You know, we haven't. Not that we can see. You know, the fact of the matter is, we don't. We American doesn't fly to any of the countries that uh, would be affected by the proposed ban. Um, so we haven't. We haven't seen um, anything that we can tell anyway uh, that is that is affecting demand for air travel. But we certainly, um, you know. But the, what we know is, um, you know, our business is all about being global and being inclusive uh, and connecting the world, uh, not not shutting down the world. So um, we're we're always. Um, we, we would prefer to see uh, a world where it's easier to fly, not harder.
0: Uh, I, I was going to just uh, <laughs> ask you, you, you don't want to do the quiz, you okay? You can go don't? back to the no, quiz, no, fine. No, you get, I, get, to, get to Boston. It's I, well, I was
2: like, worried about some, where you're going to end up. But I no, no, no,
0: no. <laughs> hey, well, you, you want to talk about our nation's capital? I mean, yeah. would they benefit from a new AT, uh, air traffic control system?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's, there are huge ATC delays in and out of D.C.
0: Yeah. All right. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, I guess you could just send Doug an email when, you know, next time you're on the tarmac. Lisa. I'll
1: Also, yeah. also personally, no, don't worry, Doug.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Anytime.
0: <laughs> See? All right. Doug Parker, thank you. American Airlines Chairman and Chief Executive.
1: We are here broadcasting live from Pershing's Insight 2017 conference at the Manchester Grand Hyde in San Diego, and David Maza walked by. David Maza is head of Beta Solutions Investment Marketing and ETF uh, specialists at Oppenheimer Funds. He just uh, joined from State Street. Uh, David, it's so good to have you. And you know, I'm struck by the shift that's going on in the ETF and the exchange traded fund industry right now, moving from broad indexed funds, an easy, cheap way to get access to stocks and bonds. Moving now to, I guess, indexed that have perhaps a little bit of higher fees and somewhat a little bit more complicated strategies. What's the risk here that, you know, in some ways there's a sort of uh, bastardization of the sort of beauty of what the ETF industry was?
3: You're touching on uh, one of the most important trends that we're seeing in the ETF industry where there's now 785 billion of assets under management in what are called smart beta strategies. And that's a term that nobody likes, but effectively (laughs) what it tells you is that it takes index-like characteristics, so that's transparency, rules-based, and generally low cost, but combines it with some of the elements that active managers have used for years. And that's, of course, potentially looking to outperform an index, maybe have lower volatility, or increase diversification.
0: No, I, I would just wanted to ask, uh, can you just explain how they end up being categorized? In other words, in these portfolios, if you have, as you describe, both the best of both worlds to a certain extent, what are the, how, give us an example of the roles of each.
3: Yeah, exactly. So effectively, managers, of course, uh, have been value managers for a long time, right? Or growth managers. So these are individuals who've used a team of analysts or their own expertise to say, I'm gonna look for the cheapest stocks in a universe, or I'm gonna look for stocks with the best growth potential. But guess what? you can actually create rules around these strategies. So let me screen a universe for the least expensive stocks or screen a universe for stocks with the best momentum right. or the best quality. And that's really the beauty of it. You take um, this evidence that have, has existed, these premiums that are out there. So those are things like stocks that are inexpensively valued tend to perform well. Those are stocks with strong momentum can t- tend to continue to have strong momentum. And you, just, you create rules around them and you can then package those as strategies for investors to use in their portfolio right. alongside maybe a traditional index fund.
1: But David, they are usually a uh, higher cost, right?
3: Yeah, so you tend to have to pay a little bit of a premium. But for example, uh, you know, ETFs of course have actually pushed down the uh, price effectively for all um, strategies that right. we're seeing actually active management go lower. And generally when we're thinking about smart beta, these are on average about 25 basis points, 25 to 50. So net net, that's actually still pretty attractive.
1: You know, I'm wondering, is this product, the smart beta, is it being driven by the asset managers looking to pitch something to the investors or is this coming from investors demanding a little bit more nuanced ETF?
3: So I actually think it's coming from both areas. So certainly uh, asset managers are looking to take their strategies that they've used, package them differently and, and, and offer them as products. But if we look at the demand for this, it's really coming from clients. We're seeing people who are skeptical, of course, of active management. And saying, hey, we've had 10 years, every year it comes out, this is year active, especially in the US, market's gonna return. And guess what, we haven't really seen that. But some folks, some investors, want the potential to outperform. And if I can do so not paying 100 basis points, so a percent, but I can potentially do so at 25, that's where they see the beauty of it. So a recent survey came out where cost used to not be a main driver of actual why you'd invest in smart beta. So is looking at four years of data. And now this year, actually, it's one of the top concerns that investors have. So in, a, in an environment where returns are hard to come by, when economic growth is, is low, when other than the stock market potentially continuing to go up all the time, but seemingly the risk is that that will stop at some point, investors are very, of course, cognizant of what they're paying to get those returns.
2: You
0: know, in, in uh, presenting this, I'm wondering if uh, being using the idea of smart beta is at this point in the life cycle of these kinds of products, almost a misnomer. Because it's not about smart beta, it's about having these specific strategies that you can execute.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. That's why I, I mentioned earlier that yeah. nobody likes this term, but that's what the markets coalesced around. Really what, what you're right, it's about, I think about the outcome. right, there's no one strategy that's gonna be best for anyone. Uh, Whether or not that's cap weighted passive that you can get at very low cost, or active management. And of course, smart beta fits at the intersection. It's what are we looking to get out of my particular outcome? Uh, Am I looking to get a strategy that seeks inexpensively priced stocks, but maybe they also have high quality of earnings? If I can do that systematically, package that in generally low cost, that's a great benefit for investors.
0: Yeah, because typically you would have to engage a very sophisticated organization that would charge you a very sophisticated fee and that's the only way you'd be able to access that strategy. Well, exactly.
1: Can you give us a sense of how strong the adoption of smart beta, however much people dislike the, uh, and the what they're And what they're
0: adopting. And I what they're wonder adopting. what strategy I mean, they're what, all going for.
1: How, 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 how big the flow has been? How much has it grown?
3: Yeah, so uh, total assets now are close to 780 uh, billion dollars if, which so that that's significant from what uh from effectively nothing a few years ago uh and so it's grown rapidly and what and and the categories that have grown the most of course uh which would be consistent to the market environment are strategies focused on low volatility stocks and of course there's been a lot of attention paid to this there's dra- th- another has it worked well, what's interesting? I mean, do they
0: deliver on the promise if you're going to buy a well, low
1: volatility? Vol- volatility has been nowhere, so it doesn't really matter what you buy. Volatility well, hasn't picked up anywhere. It Everything's
3: low volatility. Depends when you bought it, though. Well, it does. Exactly. So w- you have to be, when investing in these strategies, you have to know what you own and think about how long you want to own it. So low volatility is a good example. It had done significantly well uh, in the last, last year up until the summer. And then money flowed into the strategies. But those stocks got increasingly more expensive. And then if you look at the performance post July to the end of the year, they underperformed. So I recommend you look at these strategies, use them, but don't chase performance with them. If you want low volatility, you should probably own that for 10 years because I want a smoother ride. That's a good thing.
1: Is Smart Beta just with equities or is it in other asset classes
3: too? So, So Smart Beta is primarily with equities right now. But all of these things can actually be done for other asset classes. So fixed income is a, a, a great example, and we're just seeing products being launched here, is that there are some anomalies that exist in the fixed income market that managers have used for years. Carry, right, of course, you get paid to own higher yielding parts of the bond market. Uh, term premium, you can create rules around all of this. The challenge is the data is a lot harder to come by in the bond market than it is in equities.
1: Wow, so there's gonna be a carry trade smart beta ETF sometime in the future.
3: I can't I can't tell you if that's going to happen or not, but I can tell you is that there's a lot of work being done to but identify if it can,
1: I do have to wonder whether ETF providers are a little bit nervous that they're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because as ETFs get more complicated, there's more risk involved as well, and there's more potential for a potential sinkhole uh, that investors will uh, will be sort of sh- shaken out of their their love for ETFs. Wow, that's a
3: great and sucked
0: po- a, into yeah. with that sinkhole. <laughs>
3: that's a great point. That's that's so that's what we have to be cognizant of. Is that you know I'm a I'm a huge believer of ETFs. I've I've committed my career to it, if you will. But when we're looking to launch these new products and to the research around them, you have to be cognizant that you can create a rule around something, but it has to be a rule that's formidable and that actually works in a multitude of markets. So when we're just testing it, we're not just throwing the proverbial spaghetti against the wall. We're saying, hey, does this work if I look at this 10 year period or this 20 year period, 30 year period? Does it work in the US? Does it work in emerging markets? Does it work in the United Kingdom? And if all of that comes to fruition, you can say, all right, there's actually something here. There's actually something that works and then we can make an investable product.
0: All right, I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Is there a filter that you can apply to all these ETFs about what happens to them? if interest rates increase?
3: Well, that's that's the great question, right? I'll, I'll tell you, if, if we see interest rates increase, you're gonna to wanna to be looking at th- if you've bought these uh, low volatility ETFs or dividend ETFs, for example. Some of them have a lot of concentration in these bond-like stocks, utilities, consumer staples. So be cognizant of that. I'm not saying that that means you should sell them because who knows if interest rates are are going to go up. There's predictions they are now going to go down again. And you know what? Maybe more money will flow into those products. The area that's, of course, been out of favor is value. Uh, And what we've seen in the last couple of days may change that. But who knows? We saw that, of course, after the election in the U.S.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. David Mazza is head of Beta Solutions, Investment Marketing, and ETF Specialist for Oppenheimer Funds. He joins us here at Pershing's Insight 2017 at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego.
1: We are broadcasting live from Pershing's Insight 2017 conference at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego and there is a big debate raging in the bond world right now. It is the uh, perhaps fifth year of this debate which is are interest rates uh, headed upwards or are they headed downwards and, and I'm, when I say interest rates I mean benchmark rates, I mean the 10 year treasury yield, the 30 year treasury yield and with us uh, to solve this all for us and, and make it all clear, Marvin Lowe, senior global market strategist at Bny Mellon joins us here uh, in San Diego, and Marvin, where do you stand on this? Because we have some people saying, "Look, you know, yields will creep upward heading into the year end." People like Jeff Gunlock of DoubleLine, and then you have other people saying, "No, nothing is different. People have overestimated growth. We see this by the shrinking yield curve, and yields are going to go down."
4: Yeah, you know, it certainly is a big debate right now. You know, I think the Fed has expressed its resolve that they want to increase rates. Um, There certainly are economic concerns around inflation, uh, around those growth numbers, but you know, we have to remember that we're looking at trying to get yields into this new normal type of world. And when we have this new normal type of world, I think that we're going to creep up slightly Slowly, but you know, certainly not um, the big jumps that I think a lot of people expected after the election, if you will.
1: So, where is where are we going to end the year with the ten-year?
4: You know, I'll put my dartboard and say about two fifty or so.
1: All right,
0: two fifty, Marvin. A pleasure to see you. Uh, We uh, we run into each other at these kinds at these events uh, on a regular regular basis. I'm wondering if you could maybe characterize what you uh, have seen, let's say, over the past twelve months. And uh, what that may portend for actual you know, investors w- who have to make a decision about what to do with some money, let's say, over the next quarter.
4: Yeah, you know, the, the last 12 months certainly have been um, interesting from the perspective of investors needing to deal with um, things that don't necessarily get modeled very easily into you know, all of our spreadsheets. Um, by that, you know, I, I primarily think about political risk and the confusion that it causes. And when I see um, the reflation trade effectively, you know, move these asset classes by large amounts and then slowly creep back, it just really shows how difficult it is to um, put that into an economic growth perspective. Um, we certainly are dealing with asset values around the world that are very, very rich. Um, I think that's you know, pretty universal, if you will. Um, risk assets certainly have done, done its run. I think um, the announcer earlier said the NASDAQ was on, you know, the longest multi-decade run, starting at already uh, a fairly high point. Um, yeah. So investors really need to keep that in perspective. And we kind of have this volatility, but it always comes and then goes really, really quickly.
1: You know, Marvin, you said that you think that the 10-year treasury yield is gonna end at 2.5%, it's currently uh, almost uh, less than 2.2%, 2.16%. Uh, roughly, I, I'm wondering what what will it take for people to sell bonds. If you think about it, we were talking earlier uh, about how big U.S. companies just had their best earnings quarter for five years. We've already seen that, and a lot of people are expecting that the best news is behind us. The economic data is weakening. What will it take for for Treasury yields to, to to really rise?
4: You know. Um what's what's driven yields lower and what's kind of driven the commentary now with the flatter curve maybe looking at uh some of the recession numbers is inflation and it you know certainly is always a big component of how you price a bond and i would just take the the contra argument that nobody expects inflation so we're supposed to look at it a little bit more closely um i've been certainly noodling the concept that populism which is i think a trend that's here to stay has inflationary components to it uh, when we look at France and we kind of look at um, how the vote uh, arose, there were still 10 million people that felt this populism type of movement. That's something that politicians aren't going to um, just turn their back on. They want to make sure that they bring these people in the fold. And is wage pressure, is kind of pressure on greater social services part of that response? And does that have an inflationary component? Also have to remember that you know, several of the Fed members think that the unemployment rate's going to go below 4% within the next year. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's certain, certain questions about whether or not the Phillips curve, um, is accurate, but that's... The Phillips
1: curve is, by the way, the idea that there's an inverse relationship with the unemployment rate and inflation rate. Yes, thank you,
4: thank you, thank you. (laughs) Um, if we, if we, if we don't, if if we don't start seeing wage pressure when unemployment gets below 3%, I guess we'll revisit the concept of the Phillips curve. You know, having said that, the Fed has a multi-decade... Um, focus obsession about the unemployment rate. So they're going to continue along that route.
0: So, does that mean that there are like parallel strategies at work here that may actually be contradictory at the same time?
4: Well, you know, um, volatility is really an interesting aspect of kind of that um, very easy and ultimately very difficult question to answer. Um, as long as volatility remains low, it's certainly. Um, is going to push kind of this risk asset trade that's out there. And while we've got a couple of days of volatility, you know, we have to remember that over the course of the last six months, you know, since the beginning there, however you want to look at it, these risk assets are still outperforming by a very large margin. Um, It's probably an opportunity to look at pair trades. It's probably an opportunity to look at um, curve flattening type trades. Um, It seems like you would be able to balance uh, various risk calls with maybe some other calls that would give you a little bit of protection it's hard to see just an outright buy kind of given where valuations have moved over the last six months or so
1: what about cash do you recommend people boost their cash allocations
4: um, you know I, I think powder's always I think powder is always good um, you know certainly uh, you know waiting for a little bit of a correction but you know I kind of really look at the amount of liquidity that's still coming out of the central banks as keeping that volatility tamped.
1: Do you think that the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank and the fact that they've purchased more than a trillion dollars of assets in the past 12 months do you, it is just Amazing. stunning. And you know, do you think that this basically makes the Fed irrelevant at this point? Is it really all about the BOJ and the ECB?
4: Until we get um, an actual decrease in the amount of liquidity that you're adding into the system, I think that it is. I think that there's uh, a lot of um, insight into that statement. We've had years, multi-years at this point, where we've been adding half a trillion, a trillion, over a trillion, like you said, um, coming into the system, even though the Fed hasn't purchased a single security in years. Next year, the Fed's going to start taking liquidity out. Next year, the ECB is not going to be buying as much as it buys now. Next year, the Bank of Japan is Probably not going to increase its purchases. When you look at that on a year-over-year basis, you're looking at a 500 to six, seven hundred billion dollar contraction in liquidity. That to me is an underappreciated aspect of kind of the thought process. Having said that, the market's not focused on it right now. Volatility, I, I you know, I feel that volatility is going to remain low until
0: um, you actually have that occurring and people start to focus on it. Well, that's certainly something that we're going to be turning to you to help us understand when that happens. When Much it happens. appreciated. Marvin Lowe is Senior Global Market Strategist for BNY Mellon, and he joins us here at uh, Pershing Insight 2017 in San Diego.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.